My guest today is Adhi Sikand. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. He's a PhD student at USC, University of Southern California here in Los Angeles. And uh, his lab is just a few miles away from where, I, where I'm doing this podcast right now. Very smart and interesting fellow who's very much connected to the Los Angeles biotech community. Uh, last year, he was president of uh, BCLA, which is LA's probably LA's largest biotech networking uh, community. And this conversation was really interesting. We covered a lot of different things like he's originally from India and then he started doing his research in Canada and then now he's in the United States. And that presents a unique opportunity to talk about maybe some of the pros and cons of working in the different countries and what sort of information could we learn from each other if we take the best of all of the different worlds and uh, combine them into, together. And also, it's, I think it's good because I'm an American and we're in America and uh, I do love this country. It's always a good idea to get um, someone who's had experience outside of this country about what is it that we're doing right here in America when it comes to research and uh, R&D in general? And what are the things that we should embrace and do more of? And what are some of the weaknesses that we have? And so we had a really good conversation around that particular. We also dove into some of his research with um, figuring out the underlying mechanisms that bacteria uses to develop resistance to antibiotics, for example. And that's really a really important field. Uh, anti antibiotic resistant infections continue to rise and we're not bringing a lot of new antibiotics to market. So having people do the research to figure out how to tackle that problem from another area is really important. And then finally, as usual, I always like to talk about ways that we can bridge the gap between the DIY bio community and the academic and commercial communities. And that's one of the goals that I have with Everyman Bio is try to be a connector, a bridge that bridges these all together. DIY bio folks don't need to be isolated and be out taking uh, huge risk or breaking uh, ethical boundaries to do an am amazing things. I think the world is better when we're all more closely connected and we're all playing off each other's strengths. And, and so I think there's an opportunity here in LA, but I also think just you know, globally is finding a way to get more people involved with doing independent research and then connecting them with the scientists and, um, and the larger biotech community in general. So this was a, an amazing conversation that I really enjoyed. Uh, I thank Adi for, for participating. I know he has a busy schedule. In fact, he said he was a little late because he was finishing up an experiment. And in my world, I will take that excuse every day because uh, I, to I totally understand that. Um, without further ado, Adi. Adi, thank you so much for joining the Everyman Bio Podcast. Um, you're probably the first person I've talked to in LA to on the podcast. And I think you're not too far. Are you based in the USC campus? It's right off of Vermont near the new uh, Lucas Museum that's being built. Uh, yeah. Hi, Josh. Um, and yes, I am actually uh, right uh, on the main campus. And um, I am uh, now in my sixth year of my PhD. So I've been in LA for six years now. And we are located, uh, I'm, 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 a, I'm in a biochemistry lab. And we do a lot of uh, <clears throat> molecular biology and cell work, but we are still based on the main campus here. Yeah. 
Yeah, so maybe we could just talk a little bit about your background and how you got started with biotech. And you said you moved here six years ago, and I think I was reading that you originally moved to Canada and got your start in science in Canada. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, of course. So I'm originally from India. I grew up in New Delhi, and uh, I started my undergraduate degree in India. And during my undergraduate degree in my junior year, I got an internship to participate in a research project of choice um, in Canada. Uh, so that was my first uh, time ever at being a full-time research assistant. So I did that in my junior year. Um, it's, the, it's called the MITAX Fellowship. And it's a really cool program. They fund... Um, almost everything uh, for students to fly to Canada to participate in research and they even pay a stipend. So the professors or the groups that I uh, that, that host these interns don't have to pay anything. So it was really good. I was working there uh, in the lab of Dr. Ratmir Derda um, on developing synthetic surfaces for cancer stem cells. Um, Quite honestly, my, my bachelor's uh, major was biotechnology, but I was not doing any significant research. So that was my first uh, entry. And I was just interested in cancer. And I had no idea what development of synthetic surfaces or uh, peptides would be. I just read cancer on the project. And I was like, yeah, I want to do it. Um, so um, I, I, I did that in my junior year. I really loved the project um, that I actually um, decided to spend a whole year there. So I uh, convinced my university to convert all my credits to research credits. And I instead spent one and a half years working on that project and got my first publication ever also from there. And um, that was really uh, working in the lab, uh, seeing how flexible the arts can be and uh, doing things with your hands and putting your name on it was really inspirational for me, which led me to you know apply for grad school. And um, uh, when I was applying for grad school, uh, I selected a few schools in the U.S., a few schools in, in, in Canada. And as soon as I got my acceptance to sunny Los Angeles, I was like, I'm going. You know, I grew up in a tropical country. I couldn't survive in Canada. So uh, <laughs> that's why I selected L.A. Yeah, that's a great story. You know, I, I, it, I have so many questions about what it's like to be grow up in India and then have to look at other parts of the world to go and get your further your education. What is that like? Like, how did you find out about the program when you were in India and what are the opportunities like in India? Is that a common, you know, pathway for folks who want to pursue science as a career and is to look at places like Canada or the United States to, to get that graduate level um, focus? Uh, yeah. So um, the, uh, I guess, uh, as a population, India definitely uh, loves science. Uh, everyone, uh, everyone is uh, more inclined to earn science. Everyone likes to go to college. It's it's a dream of every person to to make it to college. So um, ev almost everyone gets started off in, with a bachelor's degree. And um, uh, you know, India is a very big market for biotech industry. Uh, but in terms of um, where the industry is, it is heavily inclined towards manufacturing and less towards R&D, and uh, which makes sense because as a developing country, it doesn't have resources to dedicate towards R&D that much. It is obviously growing, uh, but it's more manufacturing 
uh, inclined, like the biggest uh, generic drugs, the biggest, biggest vaccine producer in the world are in India. Um, and there are some homegrown drugs as well, but very limited option. And when the competition is with a billion people, it gets really hard. So um, it, it was, um, I, I had traveled internationally before, so I was more comfortable, you know, going outside of the country. So um, uh, when, I, when I saw the opportunities and during undergrad, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you have to hustle to stand out because almost everyone is doing the same coursework as you. And that was my motto. And I tell that to everyone. Don't sit at home during your college days, do an internship, do something, uh, do an additional course. And uh, that's what I was doing. And I indiscriminately applied to every single, uh, you know, summer undergraduate research fellowships, which almost every university offers. So um, I did not have any preference of going to Canada. I only had a preference of going to an English speaking country. And Canada was just one of the uh, fellowships that I received. Um, so so I ended up there. Um, but really, um, you know, even after uh, after my undergrad applying for grad school, I really felt that getting a fellowship like that was one of the main drivers for an application. Um, so and in terms of R&D, you know, you asked if uh, uh, about the opportunities. I think it's very OK to say that United States is still one of the leaders in R&D in almost every single space, although there's a lot going on in other countries as well, like Switzerland, Germany, and stuff. Uh, but of course, the amount of opportunities which lie in the US are still the highest in the world. Yeah, I think it's an interesting conversation to have because as each country has its own culture, and as you mentioned, um, in Indian culture, it's very important to get your education. And I'll just say from my own and anecdotal experience and in interacting with the Indian biotech community, there's a lot of them and they're very passionate. And even on YouTube, some of the best biotech and deep, deep technical YouTube tutorials are Indian folks who don't, you can tell, don't have a lot of resources, but are incredibly knowledgeable and working hard to share that information with a larger audience. So there is, there are these interesting nuanced cultural differences that bring out different values from each country. And I think that we there's a lot that we can learn there. And, and it is a competitive environment um, across the world as technology just is, advances globally. Whatever the U.S. is good at now, we have to continue to work very hard to maintain that position. And I, you know, as someone who's kind of a, an outsider looking in and just getting acquainted with biotech, I see a lot of areas where the United States could really um, maybe shift their attitudes and perceptions Culturally, we don't have as big of an emphasis on education, or at least that's changing, I think, in terms of how we educate people. Yeah. What, maybe you could just briefly talk about, I know it's maybe not your particular area of expertise, but I'm really asking about your personal experiences between the three countries that you've spent some time in. What are some of the, the you know, maybe some strengths from each country and maybe just some ideas you have about challenges unique to the United States where we're really holding ourselves back from being what we really, you know, where we could be. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I actually want to mention one thing before I jump into this question. And uh, that's sort of related to what's going on right now. You know, we're in the pandemic, there, was a, there are vaccines being rolled out. And in terms of vaccine hesitancy, you know, it's, it's more 
in the U.S., in the Western world, whereas in Asian countries, almost 90% of the population, educated or non-educated, will trust a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of imbibed in the culture, uh, that there is no question in terms of what the science says. So it, I think it's more cultural. Uh, in terms of working in different countries, um, I'm one of the persons who honestly believe people are the same everywhere. Uh, you know, uh, I do too. We so have the same under underlying needs as human beings. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, if you divide, define academic or non-academic, right-wing, left-wing, it's the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's just in different forms. Uh, but what is different is uh, in terms of where, uh, you know, different countries are. Uh, what I have seen, you know, Canada is, is, is uh, wanting to grow and lead right now. So they invite international students, they invite people to come and join. They have proper uh, structured immigration policies to make to ensure that people can come there and stay there. Um, India is a growing country, so there's a lot of hustle there. Uh, government has many programs to get students to work, to get educated, to move up, and even move beyond India as well, because they believe that people can go out and bring resources back to the country. U.S. has done that already years ago. So what I feel is that there is some sort of like plateau which is happening, you know, U.S. grew a lot in 19, like post the first economic depression that we had 1920s, the roaring 20s, and then in the 40s, 50s, during the, uh, the space exploration program, the, um, the other programs, all, like, they really moved science, semiconductors and internet, and everything was really uh, moving U.S. to become the leader of what it is today. I think post the internet boom, you know, 2000 onwards, there has been sort of a plateau in innovation, which is happening. And over the last few years, there's been a rhetoric of immigrants coming and, um, and stealing jobs, but it is the immigrants who came here and built the country and who have driven the innovation. So I think uh, innovation is, is, is what built US and that just needs to continue. And it's one of those things that other countries are lo- have looked the model which U.S. had of innovation, and they're, they're hustling right now to innovate. But U.S. should should also keep doing it, and because the progress uh, is a continuous thing, it's not achieved and then you stop. So I think that was that. That's the main difference uh, I have seen in, in in different countries. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really an interesting conversation, and I would say America is really undergoing a cultural crisis in many ways. There are just these really powerful forces at play um, politically and ideologically that are pitting us at odds with one another as opposed to working together towards a common goal, one of those being innovation. And there are some really smart intellectuals who've had some pretty deep conversations about the plateau that's happened with innovation in America. Um, you know, we when we look at the early 20th century or late 20th century, um, we look at things like um, the internet, uh, electricity, telephones, cell phone, mobile, mobile phone usage. But when we really look at what's happened lately, there hasn't been any major technological advances the way that there have been earlier in the century. And there's a lot of discussion about why that might be. And one 
one sort of hypothesis that I've heard is that you have these really large tech companies with very, very deep pockets buying up all the intellectual mindshare and having them work on things like advertising as opposed to breakthrough therapies or breakthrough technologies. And so I don't know what the solution is to it, but I think you pointed out something quite poignant, which is innovation is sort of this continuous thing that we have to we have to iterate on we have to be competitive and tying it back to what i'm doing with everyman bio in the diy bio space is i think innovation is a sort of product of diversity of ideas and i think that's probably what you touched on where the immigration policy comes into into play bringing people from different cultural backgrounds into a space to innovate allows for I, for problems to be worked on by lots of different attitudes and, and perceptions of the world and different tools and methodologies. And that's where I see, you know, the DIY biospace potentially bringing value to biotech. And I've seen that in the computer science space. In the early yep. days of computer science, you needed to have these, you needed to have lots of degrees and a lot of experience. Now, if you have the uh, intellectual and motivational capacity, you can teach yourself to code and you can make a decent living for yourself. And that's brought a lot of new people to the computer science world to build new apps and to do interesting new creative things. And I think that that's, that's, there's an opportunity to do something like that in biotech world, uh, the biotech world as well. Absolutely. And one thing uh, I, I, I want to mention is um, like computer science is also not a very old field. It's very new, but there was a, a concerted effort by everyone to drive it. Uh, you, if you see how quickly these uh, semiconductor chips got small and efficient, it's phenomenal. For, a, for an industry or a science which is just tops five decades old, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And biology, what I think, is also five decades old. It was only in 1950s and 60s that Watson and Crick found the structure of DNA. So um, this is th this is a new field relative to you know physics and chemistry. So uh, so it, it's it's uh, it's it's okay to be like we don't know everything because we're a new field. And uh, to what you were saying, we don't know what the solution is. I think the solution is in front of us. It's biotech, green tech, clean tech. Um, and I'm very glad that there is, there is a, you know, in the past few months, there has been a shift of policies and decisions of what people are thinking. The pandemic really brought biotech in the limelight. Uh, I remember when I, uh, growing up, when I told my family, I want to go into biotech, and none of them are in, in biotech. They were all like, are you sure? Because this is still an emerging field. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a field of the future. It, there, were, there are not much opportunities right now, like 15 years ago when I started studying biotech. But I think now the time has arrived. And the pandemic really has put, us, has put the industry in limelight. And I think that can be a very good driver and a potential um, way that how the U.S. and the world keeps innovating continuously. Yeah, you, that's absolutely right. I think the pandemic... Um, a lot of things that happened with the pandemic that forced companies and business in general to adapt or to die. And the same thing happened in the biotech industry. And I think it revealed a lot of gaps 
in how we yeah. operate biotech in the United States, whether it's supply chain uh, weaknesses that we could bring into the, you know, close those gaps. There's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, but by and large, I'm pleased to see how the industry was able to pivot so quickly and to adapt to the, the needs and the changes of the environment around us. And also for it to get a little bit of more, more of a spotlight from the general public community. You know, a lot of the things that come out of biotech are still very magical and mystical to the average person. And also when you hear about the potential for genetic engineering and synthetic biology and, and some of the biochemistry work that you're doing, I, there's an immediate kind of fear response, I think, from the general public with, with that work and genetically modified organisms. And rightly so. I think it's worth like pausing for a second and having the conversation. But we have to balance everything with um, how much is that conversation and slowing down going to prevent us from being innovative and being prepared for whatever the next thing is. And how much further could we be along on, say, cancer treatment if we were to focus our energy and innovate in that particular area? So, yeah, so it, I, what I like to think is what you are doing is a step of democratizing biotech. Biotech is, is obviously, it has emerged in labs of very smart people, but with advent of new technologies, say CRISPR, with how sequencing is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper day by day, they, this is the opportunity of democratizing biotech. Now, really cool technologies don't just come out of Harvard, Stanford, MIT. They come out of uh, really state-level schools as well. And that's really to say that how uh, that biotech is spreading throughout so it doesn't have to be all the elite universities and really only the smart people. Um, and it starts with education. Uh, if people are more interested now with the pandemic, it was the first time that my family wanted to know what I am doing. Uh, my friends wanted to know before that no one really asked. So I think it starts with education. If mainstream media picks up uh, news from biotech, what is happening, how the gene editing is worked, that's where people will start getting educated. I think it's a step-by-step -step process. It should be a careful process because, you know, we are dealing with some really um, things which can be, you know, dangerous. We don't want, um, like, we, I think personally, I want people to start doing biotech like how you are doing, but in a very controlled fashion. We don't want, like, another J Josiah Zener who is injecting himself with CRISPR and trying to edit his own genes. Um, but... If there's education, then the democratization will come, but in a careful, planned way, because we're dealing with actual human lives here. I, I, I couldn't agree more, and I'm so glad that we're talking about this topic, because, you know, I, I started my DIY bio journey largely inspired by Josiah and some of the other folks in the community, because I... And I also, so I want to talk about two things. One, I want to talk about DIY bio and this, the place for that in education and also getting more people in the pipeline for biotech research. Um, but I also just in general, I and also want to talk about education, the, how education is changing and how we learn is, is changing and access to information has changed as well. And so I'll just talk about my experiences briefly seeing Josiah not necessarily inject himself with his own, you know, 
DNA and, and doing those kinds of things. That wasn't necessarily the thing that inspired me, but realizing that there weren't these walls that I thought existed. For example, I recently have learned how to uh, extract and, and run PCR on, on fungi cultures and, uh, and get them sequenced. I didn't know that as someone who is not at a nonprofit or not at an educational institution, that I could send in my PCR product and have someone sequence it for about $6 a sample. Yep. You know, if I had known that earlier, I probably would have gotten started in doing like some basic biotech stuff a lot sooner. And so I, I am thankful for some of those pioneers like Josiah to, and even his store has offered products that are yeah. a bit cheaper without that. I might not have gotten started. Okay. That said, cause I don't want to bash the guy at all. I, I really, I think yeah. he's, he's done a lot for the biotech community, but as someone who's new to biotech and to DIY bio, DIY bio had a pretty big, um, had a lot of momentum in 2009. It seems like there were a ton of articles written. Everything was about DIY, but there were all these books that were published and then it sort of fizzled out. And I'm not sure what happened that caused it to fizzle out. Maybe you can jog your memory and you have some take on that. But what I did notice and I still notice it today is there is a chasm between those who are doing DIY bio and those who are in a professional academia environment. And that chasm is creates more of an us versus them. And I think that that's because there are people on the DIY bio side who are doing things that are of, of questionable ethics, who might be doing things that are a little bit more riskier that I think the general public goes, wait a minute, we haven't even solved that at a policy or at a, a professional or academia level. And you're just jumping ahead. And, and I look, I get all the philosophical arguments about it's your own body and all that stuff, but that is not my goal at all with every man bio. I think there's actually an opportunity for Biotech is far enough along, kind of like computer science, where some of the ideas and concepts and tools have been abstract, abstracted enough that the barrier to entry is much lower for people who want to just start getting hands-on with the science. And that plays into where I think the way that people are learning and educating themselves, it's totally different today than it was 50 years ago. And yeah, definitely. And I just want to also mention that Maybe it did sound that I was bashing Josiah. I have respect no. for DIY bio, and I have respect for people who are not in, you know, academic set settings still doing because it's not an exclusive club. But where where it was an issue for me was, you know, injecting yourself when you don't know what the implications might be. That is something very dangerous. It's almost. Um, you know, even after years of study, uh, just last week, there was news for, uh, from Bluebird Bio that oncogenesis is happening by, inje by injecting patients with uh, gene editors. Now, that is something which can actually result, and it needs to happen in a more controlled and studied fashion. So this is where I think a little bit of gap appears, because there's a lot of ethics with where uh, academic institutions work with. But outside of that, uh, it's sort of becomes you know a little that who is controlling this i agree and, i think if you push the boundaries too far then what will happen is you'll have a reactionary response to that which will just slow down innovation for everybody so and i think absolutely. like if you're going to be a public figure and do diy bio 
there is a personal responsibility I think that you have to the scientific community, to yourself in general, and that is to be just be responsible. You have a lot of young people that are watching you who don't necessarily, they're not experienced enough, don't have enough wisdom to understand the implications of a lot of these decisions. So, Absolutely. So there's definitely, the, there's also yeah. a good argument for those people that are pushing the boundary. And I, this is where I, I sympathize and empathize with where they're at philosophically around the arguments on the other side are innovation is too slow. There's too many barriers of entry to make things happen. It costs too much money. There's too much power concentrated in the big public biotech companies and academia. I'm, I'm hundred percent with them. Do I think the solution is to completely take it into your own hands and, and, and as you said, inject yourself? No, I don't. I think we can have a rational conversation about ways to lower that, that barrier. So it's a great Absolutely. conversation to have for sure. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you, you, you say that ethically it's my body, it's my product, I can inject myself. But then what if next thing you are injecting um, the germline or you're injecting a fetus? Which, which is really unethical. You're, you're not, uh, apart from China, no, no country allows it. <laughs> okay. uh, and um, this comes with the fact that we know that policies come much later. The, even, even right now, social media, free speech policies are not there. So the, the bureaucracy is much slower than how things work in the industry. So till, till then, till there are actual a congressional hearing about CRISPR, the, about, uh, about something which obviously they will not, they don't understand it. Till rules are passed, it's the onus lies and the responsibility lies with the individual to think how ethical this is. So I think, you know, th th that's where it comes down to. So there will be regulation in the future about gene editing, about uh, everything. But till then, we have to be careful and control, you know, the desire to have designer babies or to inject ourselves and develop more muscles. So, yeah. Did you ever get an exposure to DIY bio at all or, or any kind of, did you ever take on any personal projects that you did sort of outside of a conventional setting? So, yeah, actually in undergrad, we um, sort of, uh, I had a project where I was building algal bioreactors and uh, we had absolutely no funding. So it was literally from uh, whatever we could find, um, you know, pipes of certain diameter uh, were our bioreactor and we were just ordering red and blue lights from um, Amazon was not there, but from whichever delivery source we had. So um, we did a lot of DIY bio back then but more recently um, it hasn't been exactly DIY bio but it has been I have helped um, some uh, founders to find um, secondhand or used PCR machines which are much cheaper to set up shop like this one <laughs> yeah, absolutely uh, so you know they have a, a formal lab uh, or like a bench uh, but they didn't have anything else and um even like a sequencing machine i know someone who is running a very successful sequencing wow, company, really? but she's yeah so she's she's not at all uh formally educated in biology but that's how she started off with a second hand sequencing machine so um th th that is all the exposure i have from helping you know 
um, or people doing the biology themselves. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, and by the way, like this thermocycler here, uh, I got from eBay. I like to tell people because eBay is a great place to source uh, biotech equipment for cheap. And this was 150 bucks and it probably cost that much to ship it because it's so heavy. (laughs) So 300 bucks and you you can get one, but there you can, I mean, I've seen people make their own. If you really want to go low tech with a PCR, you could just have uh, hot water baths. That used to be the old way they did it, heat up some water, put it in a cold one. I mean, as long as you time it and measure the temperatures correctly, you you could make it work. Absolutely. And I can tell you, uh, my lab is a very old lab. So some of the machines we have are like older than me. They're, they've been here like 20, 30 years. So you don't really need a new brand new PCR latest tech to actually do stuff because I run my experiments on really old machines and they still work. So um, it's not about having the best and the latest uh, technology. Absolutely. And I think one of the fun things for me when I was started with biotech is I had this vision in my head of these these super clean labs. Everyone's wearing a white coat, and there's and they're standing at a bench, and there's you know pipetters everywhere, and there's all this equipment and these magical machines. and And I didn't know what those, those machines were, but then when you dig into what are those machines, like this one right here, you learn that like all of this all this does is heat stuff up and cool it down, and you can program yep. it for to do it in cycles so like once you dig into like what is all the stuff and equipment they're using to me the the where the real magic is is the underlying chemistry that's actually where in my mind the the where the real magic happens and that is like the chemical and the chemistry underneath that makes biology and synthetic biology work um that that's that's probably the hardest part to learn and get started with. It's not the, it's not necessarily the equipment that you use. I'm interested in hearing more about your friend that is operating a small sequencer. That's really interesting because I, I have an idea for a small, um, getting a small HPLC machine and serving the, the mushroom community. Um, the, the amateur mushroom community, mushroom growing community is really growing quite large it's going it's going to be a four billion dollar market in the next 10 years um, because the sort of like china has always been the leader in creating medicinal mushrooms for people to eat and consume and that's sort of taken a hold in the u.s and people are becoming more open to trying new uh, new species of edible mushrooms to especially as there's like a big shift in biotech right now towards environmental environmentally friendly proteins um, there's a lot of a lot of energy going into food tech, a lot of investment. So people are looking at alternate forms of protein, and mushrooms sort of fit that bill. Simultaneously, there's a growing acceptance for psychedelic mushrooms, and so that gets a lot of people funneled into the world of mushrooms as well, because people get interested in learning about um, Psilocybe cubensis, which is the primary psychedelic mushroom, how to cultivate yeah. it, and how to grow it. Um, so yeah, I I, uh, I don't know if you can share any more about your friend that runs the sequencer. I, I, that's that's really cool, and it's pretty cool to, to, yeah, to hear so, someone did that. <laughs> so actually, that was seven seven eight years ago. Now, uh, you know, fast forward to twenty twenty one, she's been on Shark Tank and Bun, 
uh, on wow. Shark Tank as well. So now she she has obviously a more formal lab. But um, just to, you know, for audiences, if, if they're listening in, you, for example, have a setup, I, I'm assuming it's your place. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, where, where it's you, an where old room in my house. <laughs> exactly. But, um, but now there are actual... Um, uh, labs which you can rent out as well, you know, just like a WeWork, but for biotech. And a lot of these uh, incubators or just ra- lab rental space is where um, people who have just very limited funding do set up if they don't have like a home to set up shop. And, it, it, and that is where my friend Anna, uh, who uh, runs Baseboss, so Baseboss is the company who went to Shark Tank last season and won, um, or two seasons ago, I think. What is it um, again? Say ba- Baseballs. Oh, Baseballs. Yeah, B-A-S-E-P-A-W-S. So it's a it's a feline uh, cat genetics uh, testing company. Uh, and that, that's how she started, in, in a lab rental space uh, and with secondhand equipment. And that's from there she has grown up. Uh, to become a very successful entrepreneur. Um, so so it comes down to that, you know, if, even if you don't have a physical space, you can rent something for like two grand a month or with shared equipment where you have incubators and um, uh, freezers which you share with other labs and you just get a rack or you just get some, you know, a limited space. So you, you don't need a lot these days because things are getting cheaper. And it is there um, at, at many incubators where they themselves, because they don't have enough funding to get all the brand new machines, they have uh, used PCR machines and used FPLCs, HPLCs as well. So uh, that is where I, I think it's very cool that, you know, you don't need a million dollar SBIR grant to start a lab. You can, yeah. you can house yourself at someplace much cheaper. Absolutely. And I'm, re- I'm really passionate about getting people into that pipeline of actually getting hands on with doing the work, doing the research, and then taking it to the next level, whether it's starting a business or joining another business. Um, that's that's, some, that's a, a passion of mine and something I'm definitely working on doing. You touched on something, which is this co-working model that's happening in biotech. I'm, I am working with uh, an L.A. Uh, an LA VC firm called Mars Bio. To oh, I know of, them. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm working with uh, one of the partners there. I don't want to say his name, so maybe he doesn't want people to know that yeah. I, I, I could tell you privately. But I'm working with them to kind of develop a concept around creating a community bio lab in LA. There's there definitely seems to be a a void for that entry to mid level place for people to get access um there's a lot of stuff in the northeast area of la where there's like a biotech corridor over there Mm -hmm. there's uh there are some community biotech working spaces but you're still looking at maybe like a a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a month which you know if you're a real biotech startup that's not a lot of money but if you're an entry-level person that wants to gain enough independent experience and research so that you can then go pitch and get your seed round to start a company. There's a big gap there, a big chasm there. And so that's a space that we're trying to figure out how to solve. And maybe you have some thoughts on, on that in particular. Yeah, I think um, the, the difference is uh, what do you compare it with? Because um, 
biotech, I don't think it will ever reach to a point where three guys sit in a room with their laptops, order pizza, and start a company. I, I just don't think it, it is it, it is that easy. Um, it just requires a certain amount of threshold investment, but it can definitely get cheaper than what it is right now. I think because we are in one of the most expensive cities in the world as well, there is a certain amount of, uh, you know, uh, basic expense which comes with it but it gets cheaper with the amount of uh, space which is available because then there's competition it is really good with how the la city is investing in biotech there are you know special zones like the northeastern corridor and now the south bay uh, where where they are uh, inviting people to set up shop to set up shared lab spaces incubators accelerators and so on so this you know again it seems like la there's a concerted effort from private industry from public sector to to develop the biotech here so i think this is how it will get cheaper uh, because you know you don't want to be in the middle of nowhere where there are no vcs to pitch as well so i think la has a good uh, you know, closeness to Bay Area, San Diego, there's a lot of VC space here. And now slowly, you know, there are more incubators and so on going through. But we can't really compare it to computer science. You know, it will never get to that level. Of course, of course. Yeah, I I think you touch on some things about LA in particular that you're only going to be able to get the price so low because just frankly, rent is so expensive here. So that cost gets baked into every bench that gets rented out. But I will say you look at other cities like Brooklyn, like San Francisco, Oakland, they have these community bio labs. Um, but, you know, I did the math. I did the you know, part of this work that we've been doing into developing this concept. Community bio labs don't make money. <laughs> so it makes it challenging to, to fund and operate a community bio lab because there's just, you know, even if you charge $100 a month for like shared access, it's, it's just very difficult to get the numbers to work right. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't aware that South, the South Bay area, you're speaking like El Segundo or Torrance. Um, I didn't, I wasn't aware that they had an effort to attract and bring more of these biotech co-working spaces. Do you have any more like background on that or, or maybe like someplace that I can go do more research? Yeah, so it is actually in Torrance that now they have, uh, so there's a UCLA Harbor Institute called the Lundquist Institute now in Torrance. And within that institute is Biolabs, which is one of the, you know, shared lab spaces, incubators, uh, which are which is present. And I think this news is from yesterday, yeah, February 23rd, that um, the LA County has approved a 15-acre biotech park in that wow. area. Wow. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, when t- taking a step back on like how ecosystems get built, it is with real estate as well. So real estate is also should be investing. And I think it is investing in biotech. So yes, Torrance and El Segundo will also, you know, uh, I'm sure will be the next target. Because, uh, absolutely. So um yeah, definitely, you know, these are the places to uh, to watch out for. One of the good things is, you know, one of the LA County Board of Supervisors, uh, uh, Mr. Mark Ridley-Thomas, he's one of the really supporters of biotech, and he is driving uh, all these efforts. So I really respect uh, what the work he is doing because it, it will yield awesome results for 
you know, the county. Absolutely. Have you had a chance to check out Biolabs at the Lundquist Institute? I recently did a tour there about a month or two ago. I have ago. been there. Yeah. It's an incredible there. facility. Yeah, I have been there. And uh, to talk about like the LA biotech ecosystem, you know, I used to run uh, up until January, uh, a local uh, networking organization here. So we, uh, we worked with Biolabs to, you know, promote them and offer startups tours as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I think it was two years ago when they launched. So we did sort of uh, an opening event for them. Yeah, so BCLA, I wanted to talk about that because I have my first Everyman Bio meetup this Thursday uh, to start to sort of build the start start to build this network of DIYers and bridging that gap with organizations like BCLS, which cater to more mainstream academia and commercial biotech. Um, what let's talk about a little bit about your experience with with you were president, I believe, of BCLS. How did that come to be and where was the organization at when you started and what were some of the things that you worked on while, while you were engaged with the group? Uh, maybe you could share with me some pointers on organizing a successful group and to grow it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I moved to the U S you know, um, it, it was, the, it was uh, I had moved a lot in, 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 a, in a short time span. So, and I knew I was going to be in LA for really long and I wanted to stay here for the long haul. So my goal was to start networking and develop a base uh, of people that I knew here. So I really started net uh, just networking and I joined, I uh, volunteered with BCLA five years ago. And over time, I just grew within the organization and I served as president for, for the year 2020. And um, I think one of the things um, what I am proud of at, at BCLA is that there was a consistent amount of growth uh, which was seen in, you know, the fundraising, which I did and the number of events, which we did, but really that last year it was pandemic and we still kept operating as a networking organization. So I think that was one of the really thing, good things which I'm proud of. And also we started a lot of new initiatives like uh, developing free online resources for the community. Um, uh, there are YouTube videos. There's a podcast also, which is, which, which uh, features, local startups and um, I also started an initiative of uh, a consulting where students can get the opportunity to work on projects for startups and um, uh, and venture capital so it's a two-way street where students can get that experience where startups and VCs can get cheap work done uh, so I, I launched that initiative last year as well so um, that, that, that was my journey you know purely out of the networking necessity. And uh, in terms of like getting the uh, people to come to networking events, I think it's really recognizing which of the people are truly passionate and uh, just start getting a conversation going on, on with them. And uh, one person invites two more, those two invite, you know, five more. And one of the, I think there's a lot of negatives of the pandemic, obviously, but one of the positives is that now you can connect with people more easily virtually, which earlier, you know, I don't remember taking any virtual meetings with new people before the pandemic. And LA is such a city which is built around cars and built around traffic. So that was one of the, biggest challenges of of networking in los angeles was driving but that has solved with you know meetups and uh, now there's clubhouse 
and so many different things have come up and and people still have an appetite for it a year after the pandemic still a lot of virtual things are going on so i think it really starts with you know just founding a finding a small niche and once the you know people enjoy the conversation from there they invite others and so on yeah yeah that's great advice um and i think you're spot on with identifying the people that are most motivated to get involved and become active did you you know were you comfortable with asking members to do things for the the meetup like i i at some point you got to I would imagine you have to reach out to the group and say, I really want to grow this. I really want to extend this. Which of you want to get involved? Did you have success with, you know, asking people to get involved and any pointers around that in particular, or do they, do they self-identify and sort of emerge from the process on their own? So I think uh, obviously first is to, um, one of the good things which I had, was that I was working with other students to organize these meetups. <laughs> and students in general have more time on their hands and they're more excited to do these kind of things. And I am myself a student as well. So I had more time. I was passionate about doing this. But, you know, we have some professionals on our team as well uh, who have, you know, real jobs and uh, they do volunteer work uh, part-time. But one thing I think is everyone loves to give advice and everyone loves to mentor. So it is sort of framing that, hey, we would love if you come and spoke to just like the 10 of us about your journey or about give us advice about something and that person would show. So if a high caliber person is showing up, more audience will follow. And it's just, you know, uh, everyone likes when you tell them that, oh, people want to hear an advice from you. So it's one of those streaming kind of thing so win-win it kind of aligns everyone's interests absolutely yeah and then from there you know you just recognize from the audience which one which people are actually there to listen or they're there just to kill time or, <laughs> or earlier they were there to just to eat food <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally get it there is something about the remote aspect of networking meetings that is more convenient not only do you um, not have to drive but you can engage or disengage you know, as much as you'd like and whatever the event is, it's going on. Um, you can kind of pick and choose which parts you want to be paying attention to and, and ones that you don't, or that might be a little bit more difficult to do in person. Obviously, there's trade-offs. It's going to be much di- more difficult to develop those those closer interpersonal relationships when you're at a distance. Um, but it sounds like that hasn't Absolutely. held you back. Absolutely. Anymore. But even, even in real-life networking, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who feel shy to approach someone and interrupt the conversation and join in. So I think for a lot of, and I think almost 50% of the people are introverted and shy. So for, for them, it really becomes a little easier. And for someone who is extroverted, and I, I would say even you are because you run this, this podcast and you reached out to a lot of people and are, are able to have a conversation, it is not stopping you in real life or virtual. So I think life is the same for people who want to network and has become easier who found it difficult to network in person. That's a really good point. I don't consider myself extroverted, actually. So, you know, this podcast is giving me a way to, to flex those muscles and work those out. But I also, because I, I know what makes me comfortable, I always try to do the same thing for my guests or people that I'm hosting. And so, you know, my hope is tomorrow when I run this 
podcast, I think I've had 10 people say they're going to go. I would imagine half will actually show up if, if I'm lucky. Um, but it's, many of them appear to be students, and that is really something important for me to keep in mind. They might be introverted, so make sure that uh, I don't push them too quickly to you know get involved, but try to make them feel comfortable. That, that's very important and a, and a really good point. Switching gears a little bit about, so I want to get into a little bit about the research and the work that you're doing um, and get a little technical so that I can learn something um, about the, this amazing world of, of biochemistry and microbiology. Um, one of the goals that I'm currently working on is to do a transformation on a species of filamentous fungi, which has not been published yet. And it's a good goal for me. That's the way that I learn. I like to have a project in mind, and then I have a series of steps necessary to get there. So one, I learned PCR. Now I'm learning how to do cloning, use restriction enzymes, um, and so forth and so on. And uh, very soon I will get into preparing competent cells of the of the fungi, and then I think I'm going to use agrobacteria to do that. That'll be the methodology that I use to do the transformation. It seems to be the advice that I've been given and in the papers that I've read, it seems to be when you're starting out with a species which has not been uh, documented in terms of transformation, that using the agro approach is a pretty broad method which will yield some good results in the early stages. So um, can we talk a little bit about what you're working on? We don't have to get like too, too specific, but just generally speaking, that's what I'm working on, also known in the DIY space as sort of genetic engineering, this idea of taking exogenous genes and putting them into your organization, organism of interest. But I think you're working on something a little bit different. Yeah, so I actually work with um, bacteria. And um, uh, this is, during my PhD was the first time I actually worked with bacteria. I'd never worked with bacteria before. I was working with human cell lines before. Um, so it was very much of a learning curve for me as well, working with bacteria. Uh, I work with um, studying how mutations are, are incorporated in bacteria. And uh, one way to think of it is when does a mutation occur? So when there's DNA damage in the cell, you know, either through UV light or even through antibiotics or chemicals. Uh, this, there can be DNA damage and the bacteria has to mutate in order to survive. If it survives, it's de it develops resistance to its environment. And this is what I'm studying specifically for bacteria who are gaining resistance to drugs. So a lot of these bacteria are isolated from hospitals because hospitals are where all the drugs are found. Um, so what I'm trying to see is how these mutations are being put in the bacteria and and also uh, kind of uh, finding a direct link that it is because of these mutations being put in that the bacteria are developing resistance at such a fast pace. Um, yeah. Okay, I would love to just break that down a little bit for people who aren't, you know, up, up to speed on a lot of the terminology and actually what's happening. I, are you talking about uh, antibiotic resistant uh, bacteria? You know, we, we have these antibiotics, there's not a lot of them, somewhat fixed to supply, and it's very difficult, and we could talk about the, the challenges with bringing new antibiotics to market. But as soon as bacteria, because it grows so quickly, as soon as it's exposed to different environment, environmental conditions, including being around uh, antibiotic chemicals and whatnot, uh, it has the ability to, to mutate, to modify its DNA, uh, to respond to that ex that external force on it, 
and can develop a resistance to it. And that's obviously a very important field of study because, you know, if you get an infection from the wrong bug, it can be very difficult to treat it if, if the bacteria has evolved to, to work against or work around that. These mutations that occur, what I'm really curious, because I don't, you know, you hear about mutations and, and you have, I think it's easy to develop a conceptual idea of, okay, we know there's bacteria, that it has DNA and that, that DNA changes. What invokes that change in the DNA when they're, when they're in an environment, say, when they're developing that resistance? <clears throat> what invokes that change? And what is the underlying mechanism that, that uh, I guess, makes that change? Is it that the external... Uh, environmental factor, say it's an antibiotic, is is actually changing its DNA. And if it lives, then you know, obviously it will pass on those genetic changes. Is that could you break that part particular down? Because I one last little piece I'll add on to that is I know that some of the part of the reason from what I've read of some of the challenges with CRISPR, which is just a way of like cutting out and modifying DNA is the cell's own ability to repair DNA. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Is that a factor at all in so the, the research you're doing? And maybe you could just talk generally about what those underlying mutagenic forces are in the, in the repairing process, like Abs- how, how some of that Abs- works. Absolutely. And you actually really went on spot with this. Uh, so it is related to DNA repair. So um, usually it's very direct with UV light that we think of that when UV light hits the DNA, it changes the chemistry of the DNA. You know, either a sugar gets removed or a base gets removed and there's a damage in the DNA, which we like to call as lesion. So that UV, we can think because, you know, uh, there's these rays which fall on the DNA and change the chemistry. But the same type of lesion can occur when there are chemicals present as well. So they're, they're the exact same type of damage which happens. Now, uh, in in the bacteria, you know, there are these synthesizing and DNA synthesizing enzymes called polymerases. Now, there are a lot, there are five polymerases present in bacteria. The bacteria wants to repair this DNA in the most correct form. It does not want a mutation because it wants to live as it was. So it it has these uh, polymerase 3 and polymerase 2 uh, or polymerase 1 working on this DNA and they have an implicit correction um, feature. So if there is a wrong nucleotide incorporated, it can correct itself. But when it encounters a DNA damage, the, the polymerase cannot work on it. It's just the way it is designed by nature. It just cannot work on it. When it cannot work on it, the, the bacteria takes out its wild card, which is the DNA polymerase 5, uh, which was actually discovered in the lab where I work. This particular enzyme can put anything across the damaged DNA because it does not have a self-correction feature. So um, it is a very low fidelity. That means it incorporates literally anything across the DNA. We know that across, um, you know, uh, a G, a C goes across an A, a T goes, and that's the correct way. But DNA polymerase 5 does not think that way because it doesn't correct itself once it, it incorporates. So when this enzyme acts on the damage, it incorporates a mutation and the DNA is complete. 
so the the cell moves on but it's literally the last resort so i study this dna polymerase and its various homologs or cousins which are found in these in these bacteria which are even more mutagenic than dna polymerase wow. wow so when all the dna repair mechanisms and the high fidelity enzymes uh, don't work that's when the white card or the low fidelity enzyme comes in because you know it the the bacteria cannot have a gap in the dna it will not multiply if there's a gap so it would rather have an error in the dna and with the error it may or may not survive so that's like a, a risk the bacteria takes so, uh, and if it survives it becomes resistant does that that uh, polymerase enzyme the fifth one that comes in that's low fidelity does it end up is it taking like maybe single um what's the word i'm looking for not single threaded uh uh single strand single stranded is it taking single strand nucleotides and in where there's an a it's actually sometimes adding the wrong letter so you have diff- you have the wrong pairs i just yeah. did how does that work because i just thought that chem like chemistry chemically those nucleotides wouldn't join with anything else so you know with um like gnc there are three hydrogen bonds formed in between them which makes them the more stable between a and t two hydrogen bonds are formed which makes them more stable and it aligns in a perfect way that it fits yeah. but the others they also form a hydrogen bond because both have carbon and oxygen and hydrogens so hydrogen bonds are formed but in a weak form that uh how we say that every organism wants the most stable energy so it's not the most stable energy but the bond oh, is see. still formed and it it is this um the correction the self correction uh the exonucleus what uh, is uh, the technical term feature which polymerases have which goes back checks if the if an error is there and then corrects it but because pol5 doesn't have this check feature that error remains Ah okay that's really fascinating and for people who don't know these polymerase enzymes have a tremendous amount of use in biotech um i i'm not sure if you work uh, i work with the what's called the tac polymerase mm-hmm. that's used yeah. to perform pcr and to and to amplify it uh, amplify segments of uh, genes or just segments of dna um so what i find interesting is a lot of these functions that are happening are that are happening on the dna it's, itself are also encoded within the dna so it's the dna within the bacteria that actually encodes for these polymerases that actually once they're made uh, they're they're also responsible responsible for repairing themselves <laughs> I, I think that's pretty um, interesting but it it does beg the question in my mind are we looking at genetic modification of the underlying genes that code for these polymerases to make them behave differently for example the polymerase 5 for example is it i wonder if it's possible to modify its instruction set within the genome to have it behave differently almost like a a, a synthetic polymerase if you will Yeah so you can um you can obviously kill it you know you can knock knock it out uh, you can knock out the gene but how, where all will you go to knock it out you know there are so many bacteria there's a million bacteria just in our gut um so you cannot 
go out in nature and find every bacteria and edit it out. Um, instead, what uh, that's why small molecule drug design exists because you can understand how the mechanism works, how it is regulated, and and design a drug or a small molecule to block that mechanism step. Ah, okay. So this is where we can potentially develop a drug that prevents the mutations from occurring that might lead to the resistance of, a, of an antibiotic, for example. Absolutely. And one of the, you know, when you think of multi-drug resistance as a problem, uh, you think of a solution that, okay, let's find new antibiotics, let's find new drugs. But the issue is that the bacteria will gain resistance to the new drug as well, probably faster than the then the next drug will come. Yeah, so this is a, t- a double-faceted way of approaching this problem, is approaching it at a di- from a completely different angle. Rather than continually introducing a new molecule that we know the organism will adapt to, we, it sounds like you're researching how to address the underlying, uh, the adaptation that the molecule is able to, to put into place to develop that resistance. Yeah, exactly. So with this you know, potentially this kind of research, I would imagine, could lead to when it, when it comes time to treatment, you would take your antibiotic, but you might also take this other drug, which would prevent the bacterial infection from developing resistance to that antibiotic. Yeah, or it can be just in the same formulation. Ah, that's really, really interesting. So, wow, okay. Um, what is the, and this is more just for educational purposes for people who might be curious, what is the goal of your research? Do you, are you doing it because you want to, obviously you have an interest in the science and want to make some real discoveries that have an impact. Um, are you looking to maybe start a, a business from this or start a company from, from the work that you do at some point? So I would definitely love to. Uh, but I know uh, for one fact that my research is more fundamental. You know, DNA polymerase 5 was discovered in 99. Uh, so we're still understanding the, the mechanisms of it. And when you say logically that, okay, this enzyme is, is causing mutations in the bacteria and these mu- these bacteria are mutated and multi-drug resistance, um, it's not exactly clear that it is because of this enzyme. So we're still trying to prove that yes, this is we have the proof that it is because of this polymerase that the bacteria is gaining mutation. So it's still in the works of researching and proving before you know it's finalized. So um, I, uh, in my own professional career, I want to stop at my PhD. I don't want to work, keep working on this for a very long time. So I want to uh, move into industry after this but I still want to be involved in the space of infectious diseases. I particularly love synthetic biology myself. Yeah. Uh, so I want to move into that space. I um, am particularly very interested in uh, sustainable fashion and lab-grown uh, stuff, lab-grown threads, lab-grown leather. So I would love an opportunity to work on it. It will be a learning curve for me because I'm not a synthetic biologist myself, but that is where I honestly have a very vested interest and I hope to get in that field. That's so cool. I, you have, PhD. That's amazing. You have a lot of overlap with the DIY folks because they, there's a lot of people in that space that are working on fungi in particular, how to make, uh, how, how to incorporate those into textiles and uh, wearables. In fact, there was a paper just published yesterday about uh, 
fungal wearables, what they did was they took oyster mushroom, grew it into some fabric, placed some electrodes and ran electrical current through it. And they were able to measure differentials in the electrical current through the mycelium in the fabric. And if you can do that, then you can create a fungi-based sensor and potentially have these wearable, live, like hybrid living textiles. Who knows where it'll go, but uh, I'll be happy to send you the paper because I think you would be interested in learning about it. Um, the Actually, last thing there's, I, there's so much you can do. Uh, synthetic biology is just super, super cool. It's really cool. I mean, I, that's, that's why I'm researching it as an independent researcher, and I'm super excited about it as a field. And I think if more people knew what the potentials were, they would get excited as well. And as a like just broad ranging application to all of our lives and probably in 50 years, it'll just be so ingrained in everything that we do. Um, the last thing I want to touch on is, and this is something I spoke with uh, Ryan Cocker yesterday and on the podcast, which hasn't been released, uh, probably get released early next week. He's a, a PhD in Canada uh, studying synthetic biology, uh, algae in particular. And we talked a little bit about the pipeline from academia to entrepreneurialism. And that's, that's something that's really important. I imagine that came up quite a bit in your work with BCLA, and that is helping make people make that transition from doing research to creating a company or a business around that. I, w- I wonder if you could talk a little bit about things maybe that USC or these ideas you have around ways that we can improve that making that transition for people who want to become entrepreneurs and start a business. What are the challenges both mentally, because it is a different mindset um, and also just practically on the ground with equipping students to transition from, I'm going to do this research to how can I make this a marketable product that I, that I could bring that work, work to bring to market. Absolutely. And actually this, uh, sort of circles back to what I'm doing right now after my position at BCLA as well. So I think the answer really lies in two two different factors. And um, the overall umbrella is just education, right? Uh, education is necessary um, because if you think about just science, scientists usually don't know what is commercial, what is actually useful. Even in my line of work, I have done so much, so many experiments, which is like, not sellable, you know, in quotes, but they're impo- they, they were interesting to me, but in the broader sense of what they're adding to humankind, they're not that important. So you, I think scientists need to learn or get educated on that what actually can be translated into a product. And um, this can be either done, you know, through mentorship or by connecting business students who have a, uh, have an interest in healthcare and biotech but don't have that much experience and connecting the hands-on scientists together so that they work uh, together and, and brainstorm on what ideas are actually practical. And um, w- one of the things which I have decided to take on uh, why, at my position at USC is to create a venture program around this. So it's a student-run venture program called Activate, which has been running in Harvard and MIT for last two years. And I'm trying to set that up here in, in USC, where uh, we are aiming at um, creating these teams of one PhD and one MBA together and, and matching them with mentors 
from VC, from industry, from research track to brainstorm over three months and then finally pitch. Um, so th- this is where I think really the solution lies in um, in education, either through actual coursework, formal education, or through mentorship, you know, having people connect with industry professionals, because as I said, everyone loves to give advice. So it's really important to have good mentors. Absolutely. Do you think there's anything inherent in academia that creates a misalignment of incentives? And more specifically, when you're getting, when you're in a graduate program, the, my understanding is that getting published, that is the currency of the trade. And I can imagine that there's a lot of pressure to find something to work on so that you can get published, so you can get your research published. And you may have to do that under a set of constraints that might hold you back from actually exploring problems that are more valuable in, uh, in a commercial marketplace. Yeah, it's more of a systemic problem than what an individual problem. Um, You know, uh, in undergrad, you only think about getting a 4.0, but we know that even a college degree is not important to be to be the most successful person. You know, we have Mark Zuckerberg on this planet. Um, And then in graduate school, it's um, you're very limited by what the grant says, um, because the lab is run by the grant. Um, you cannot just start doing experiments because you have certain limitations, you have certain goals to meet because of the grant. And then there comes, you know, um, not every problem is funded uh, at at an academic or school level. So that is another issue. So um, it's, 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 it's not a one solution problem, um, but it starts with, you know, getting even professors uh, aligned with the mission that you ha- you should work towards something which can actually benefit and translate into a product. And then it, it seeps down into students. So it's more of, um, which is happening, uh, to be honest, you know, that like how NIH and CDC put out calls for researchers to work on, um, like there were calls to put out for, to work on coronavirus. Uh, there have been calls to put out on, to work on multidrug resistant bacteria and superbugs um, in, in, in 1990s, there were calls to put out HIV, to study HIV. So there were incentives, and that's how, it, you know, the science happened. And, you know, we've, we've, we're very close to solving the HIV pandemic. We're very close to controlling the coronavirus pandemic. So it happens in a systemic way. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that's the only way it can happen if we incentivize professors to research so that they write grants in a way that it will translate into a product, and then students will work on that. So I think that's how it can happen. That but there are, limit, there are limitations. You know, you, I am bound by what my boss says. My boss is bound by what the grant says. Well, may, perhaps what we're doing, which is having conversations about this and bringing uh, into the consciousness that these are things that need to be considered at the very early stages of even funding the lab and doing grant applications, um, the, the potential for having this area of research be uh, uh, allow for people to work on ideas that have commercial viability and value, um, you know, different kinds of value. Uh, it's, it's a good conversation to have. Adhi, thank you so much for joining me. I hope that at some point we can get together in person, especially since you're literally like four miles down the road. Prior to the pandemic, I was at the USC campus quite a bit. I would go to the Doheny Library, which is one of my favorite places to visit in LA because it's 
it's sort of like a little bit of a tropical oasis in middle in the middle of an urban jungle um and it was just such a peaceful place to come in bring my laptop and uh, do work around around the area um thanks again and uh, i hope we'll, we can keep in touch and i would love to have you back on when you make a little bit more progress on your research and 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 some big things are are sure to happen uh, in your coming career, I, I can definitely tell. I mean, you've, you've played such a big role already being in LA in only five years, having been the president of arguably one of the largest biotech networking communities and now researching a, a pretty important topic. Uh, you have some amazing things ahead of you that I'm excited to follow. And I'm just thankful that you were open to this experience and uh, take the time to talk with me. Of course. Thank you for having me, Josh. Okay, man. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll be in touch soon.